Hello, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Today we're talking to Aaron Bastani, who I'm sure you'll all know. He's the co-founder of Navara Media. And I'm reliably informed we're the first podcast that he speaks to about his eagerly anticipated new book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, which is out in the beginning of June. Here is myself, Alex Hochuli, and Phil Cunliffe talking to Aaron. Hi, Aaron. How's it going? Very well, thank you. How are you guys? Very well. Very excited to have this chat, which we've been wanting to have for a long time, uh, because we are going to talk about fully automated luxury communism, of course. Uh, Your book out is out next month. Is that right? That's right. It's out in the US and UK on June the 11th. Excellent. Congratulations. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, But it's also, I mean, it's a a bit of a, it's a slogan which you've been running with for a little while now. uh, And I've always been a fan. I think it's great. I think it's quite exciting and it captures a spirit which is maybe too often lacking in the contemporary left, um, which I guess is a, and I'll let you I'll let you actually elaborate on what it is rather than telling listeners what it is. But at least to me, it seems like an orientation towards a, a greater, more pos- prosperous and more free future, um, mm-hmm. which is it maybe goes beyond the more limited promises of traditional social democracy, which would be, let's say, a council house for everyone. This seems to promise luxury communism, uh, which sounds a lot more exciting. So maybe tell us tell us a little bit about the slogan and then how that led towards a book. Yeah, so I mean, I started to really think about that sequence of words, I guess, maybe 2014. Um, And I'd previously seen ideas of luxury communism, luxury for all, everything for everyone. Uh, At the same time, obviously, we were seeing changes in technology, which I'd I'd observed with interest for years, really. And I think there was some sort of eureka moment, though I can't really isolate when it was, where these two realizations these two ideological realizations kind of converged um i think it kind of it was after many years of fermentation reading things like i'm sure many of your listeners are you know very familiar with this canon um andre gore's um so a certain interpretation of marx drawing on for instance the grundrisse and actually the more developed my thinking on this became the more critical of those voices i was hmm. uh, but they did hit on something very fundamental which is about a relationship between capitalism between technology human nature abundance Um, and they had a certain criticism of capitalism which was that even if one accepts that over the course of the last 250 years uh, capitalism has been very good at creating greater levels of abundance what marx would call use value even if you accept that premise what seems to be happening over the last couple of decades is increasingly that profit is generated from the constraint of abundance Uh, And that's always existed to an extent, uh, but that's becoming more and more evident over time. So you see that, for instance, in uh, Napster file sharing technologies um, in the early 2000s. And the the sort of central thesis of the book is that that is going to apply to ever larger sections of the economy. So I think one one thing we may have to clear up before we go any further um, is introduce another big term just so that maybe that it's there and then we can refer back to it. That's acceleration or accelerationism. Um, I think, I mean, I personally became interested in accelerationism maybe around the same time as uh, what you said, 2014, when you started thinking about fully automated luxury communism. 
And it can be a problematic term because it can be seen as pro-capitalist, uh, furthering technology on the one hand, but also increasing alienation, breaking down social bonds, and so on. Mm. And as a consequence, some people see themselves as left accelerationists. Uh, do you see yourself as one? Does that fit into that kind of left accelerationist canon, if, if we can speak of such a thing? Partly, um, but I think I also... I also view myself as a humanist. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Paul Mason's new book out, Clear Bright Future. And there's much I disagree with Paul on, particularly Brexit. I'm sure we'll mm. talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> we'll get there. But <laughs> but actually, in regards to his understanding of Marx as an Enlightenment thinker, a certain kind of Enlightenment thinker, um, I agree with him. That's not, and he, you know, he's very clear to delimit the the European Enlightenment, the Renaissance sort of, you know continuation of renaissance humanism in europe and there's a different kind in islam and so on and it's very easy to be eurocentric but clearly if we want to put, sort of situate marx in historic context he is probably you know, quite arguably uh, the last of the sort of great enlightenment thinkers um and i i kind of agree with that uh, so as a humanist reading of marx and as a consequence of that you're very much trying to situate a political project where humans are at the front and center of the project, human flourishing, the flourishing of the individual, and of course, the flourishing of the individual, the good person, the good personality, the good life is only possible within the good society. And these two questions are both uh, constitutive of one another. What is the good person? What is the good society? Uh, and so partly I'm, I'm sympathetic to those sort of left accelerationist arguments. And I think, you know, they have a good understanding of the present conjuncture uh, and how capital relates to technology. But in terms of a political project propositionally, um, I'm disinclined from certain features of, of that thinking. Yeah, because I think it can potentially it can potentially lead to uh, transhumanism, posthumanism. And I think fundamentally, given the present dynamics of neoliberalism, capitalist development, those are quite dangerous tendencies because you start to think about the subordination of humans to machine control. You start to think about how, for instance, over time, as we begin to um, edit our own biology, that the dream of uh, the aristocracy for thousands of years, they will literally be biologically distinct from the rest of us. Uh, that could finally come true. So I am quite skeptical about certain trends than left accelerationism because I think it can tend towards those kinds of politics. Right. And I think we are going to have to come on to automation because I mean, that's the, that's the sharp end of, of the kind of futurist vision that you paint. Um, I'm going to pass on to Phil actually, because he had a, he had a question specifically about the nature of, you know, unbridled support for technology or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And just before that though, Aaron, I wanted just to roll back just a bit to, um, how far, if you could maybe just tell us kind of how the journey that you traveled from. So you mentioned that you can't quite remember the moment that the kind of the ideas crystallized together in your head and that you'd be paying attention to them for a very long time. But mm. I know like for myself, speaking for myself, I mean, I began um, uh, when I kind of began um, on my uh, intellectual perambulations on the left, I guess I began as a greenish kind of anarchist and then bounced around a lot. And, you know, so the idea of um, a radically, a radically technologically sophisticated, radically upgraded, socially improved society built around wealth and abundance for all that would have been quite foreign to my thinking um, in my earlier days. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the journey that you traveled. Where did you begin with your mm. left-wing thinking and how, you know, and 
what were the stages you passed through to get to to hashtag folk? <laughs> um, so I think like many people of uh, our generation, 2008, the financial crisis was obviously a, a major, major shock to the system. And there was something of a sort of ideological realization. I think the moment when I saw, for instance, the G20 meltdown and things like this, and I was really happy these things were happening. I was really happy when Lehman collapsed. Um, and as somebody who was just a sort of a vanilla social democrat, broadly speaking, because um, those were the, the parameters within which politics could function and was permitted to function, I would have been, for instance, I was anti-war, right? Uh, and that was the left wing of Labour for a very long time. Obviously, that's now quite significantly changed. But questions around the economy um, were quite limited. Like I say, 2008 changed that. And when I reacted to certain things like G20 meltdown or Lehman collapsing or, you know, um, AIG going bust, I saw the reactions of my friends and they were saying, this is bad. These are bad things. You know, this is bad for us. And I was like, well, why is it bad for us? You know, these this is obviously the end of an era. Now we can revert to sort of mid 20th century social democracy. That was my instinct. And obviously, because it, that that was simultaneous with the end of Tony Blair, he left in 2007. We'd all been told that Gordon Brown secretly was, you know, was further to the left of where of where he'd been uh, as the sort of understudy to Tony Blair since 1997. Yeah. That failed. That failed to generally materialise. At which point, between 2008 and 2010, before the entry of the coalition government, what was happening? You have to cast your mind back. One was that David Harvey, a leading uh, sort of geographer, but you know he does go over issues of history and you know economics. He's a, probably the leading Anglophone Marxist theorist. He was putting his lectures on online. They were videos. So that's one thing. I had access to a resource which all of a sudden gave me a different interpretation of the world. I'd read the Communist Manifesto. I'd med, read the 1848 manuscripts, etc. But capital is a different you know, beast altogether. So there was that. At the same time, you have the free software movement. You have copyleft and so on. There was this burgeoning cultural movement as well. Um, and I think that those things coming together, crisis, a very felt lived decline in material expectations for people of my age, including myself, all of these things. And then you have sort of the austerity government coming in after 2010. It peaked a sort of sense of intellectual curiosity and ferment, which meant that you gravitate towards Marx. You ask those questions. You look at copyleft. You say, well, why can't we do this? We have this abundance and it's being sort of created, you know, it's being rendered artificially scarce through the imposition of market mechanisms. You know, people like Cory Doctorow, Lawrence Lessig talk about those issues or Jochai Benkler talked about those issues in the good times, right, before 2008. So I think that's a really key, key thing. You have Marx, you have the copyleft movement, and then you have the austerity government. And together, um, they sort of created, for me anyway, a sort of a several year window where, you know, I thought there is really no alternative but radical left politics. You know, there is not a social democratic solution to this crisis. Uh, we do live in a technological era where we could be doing so much better, have so much more. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that was it over the last, what, that's what, 11 years, I guess. But probably like yourself, um, when Genoa happened, when Seattle happened, when Prague happened with the auto-globalization movement, I very much liked those people. I was on their side. Um, but that really only sort of came to the fore with a concrete political agenda, I guess, like I say, with first 2008 and then not long after the austerity coalition. Right. I mean, I my experience was kind of 
possibly even the other way around. Uh, but I'm going to put this to you just as a way of maybe getting talking about the nature of um, the nature of a potentially technological utopia. Let's say. I mean, my my perspective uh, around that period, maybe before the global financial crisis, and maybe even a little while after, was kind of an accelerationist one. I was inspired by like futurist visions uh, and the idea that society seemed very staid needed to be combated. I mean, and, you know, this was kind of in my, I guess, political immaturity, but just wanted something to break um, break the stasis that that the post-Cold War, you know, society in Western societies found themselves. And pushing forward technological advance seemed to be the best way to do that. And it was kind of a, a kind of maybe perhaps an uncritical vision on my part. And when I think fully automated luxury communism, when that slogan was put about, I was like, yeah, this is this is the thing right now. And it's funny that nowadays, at least for myself, it seems that with some more actual politics going on, I mean, this is the, you know, a consistent thread in this podcast that we talk about sort of the return of politics at a certain point in time, or at least that things start to be shaken up, that that sort of technological utopian idea becomes less appealing now that there's actual politics going on. Do you, do you find that as well or? Um, no, nah, not really. I mean, fully, I mean, it's called fully automated luxury communism because it has a politics, which is communism. Um, and obviously that's a, a bit of a response to people that say, well, it's technologically determinist. Well, it's, it's not technologically determinist. Otherwise, it would just be called, you know, fully automated luxury. It's going to happen. Um, I think ultimately people recognize the scale of the problems we're facing. So, yes, something was clearly activated after 2008. Simultaneously, we know that was probably the first wave of crisis, which will be followed by several others, ecological, uh, political fragmentation. Um, clearly, the era of neoliberalism is is going. We don't know what's going to replace it. Certain parts of the world, it may be a form of protean fascism. Will that um, will that permeate the sort of great powers, China, the European Union, the United States? We don't know. Uh, so I think. I think now is very much the time, actually, to be talking about utopianism. Um, and it is very, the book is a utopian project. That's not to say it's a politically impractical or impossible one. But it, the, the, the thing is, you have to understand that there is a great deal of fantasy required to keep the ship afloat right now when it comes to our present economic model, when it comes to how we run our societies. And what I really want to transmit to your listeners or to anybody who reads the book is that the 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 flights of fancy quote-unquote in this book whether it's on you know genetic editing gene sequencing um uh you know more renewable energy than we could possibly imagine whether it comes to um meat without animals which is cheaper tastier and has far less or virtually a negligible carbon footprint compared to present meat production all of these things are infinitely more plausible than the continuation of neoliberalism yeah. so on the one hand yes these are utopian ideas it's utopian thinking but since 2008 we've very much had precisely that to ensure um the present order of things is maintained that's really that's really interesting and i mean it strikes me that this point about the the fantasy that's required simply to keep the current show on the road is um, a very striking proposition, and it seems to me it applies much more widely, um, not least, I mean, and we'll come to this, I expect, with Brexit when we talk a bit about Brexit a bit later, but um, the European Union as a project seems to me to be similarly kind of have to survive on um, fantastical pr- promises mm. um, just to keep this kind of status quo, the Eurozone um 
alive as an idea. Okay, so you mentioned that you it's not it's not just a technological determinism um, because it involves the politics, and we'll come and like we'll want to unpack that a bit more in a moment. But I thought I just wanted you to explain a bit more this idea of um, artificially induced scarcity through the profit mechanism. So you mm. talk about um, kind of the abundance that's possible through uh, file sharing and in the internet and so on. Mm. But you know, I mean, you, you can't. Um, uh, you know, you can do that over the internet, but you can't uh, get clean water over the internet. Yep. You can order food over the internet, but you can't eat off the internet. You know, if you're hungry, the internet's not going to help you. So, well, I mean, I guess you can order, but you need the money. Anyway, you know what I mean, right? So yep. explain us a bit more about this kind of, about the mechanisms of artificial scarcity. Yeah, so it's a really great question. And it would have been a question I wouldn't have had, a well, I hope it's a succinct answer to for a long time. Um, because it was more of an intuition than sort of a, a cogent thought through uh, perspective. So the the fundamental claim is that information is increasingly a central factor of production. And that's not a particularly radical thing to say. You get that in somebody like Peter Drucker says it in 1994, I believe, post-capitalist society. Uh, you get it uh, in Paul Romer, who became a very eminent economist. He wrote in 1990 something called endogenous growth theory. Now, until 1990, economists didn't actually view um, technological change as a variable in growth. And he said, well, this is this is patently absurd. This can't be right. Clearly, technological change, it's a factor in how we understand growth rates. And um, until then, really, economic growth had been understood through exogenous factors. That is to say, land, labor, capital, etc., uh, and he said, actually, this is a this is a new thing, and it's clearly a variable. And so the instructions for making a good are a variable, right? And we can we can debate over the extent of that. Now, what Peter Drucker would say is that the instructions for making something over time, between sort of birth of industrial capitalism, let's say, let's say the early nineteenth century, it really goes on steroids by the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, with the second industrial revolution. But the the instructions for making something now are far more important, <clears throat> that's where far more value resides than in the 1870s. And the issue with that is, and so you're thinking, well, okay, that's great with regards to, say, music. We know what that means, right? The instructions are effectively a digitized informational copy of a track or an album or a film. Very easy to understand. Now, how does that apply to biology, healthcare? Well, if you look at, for instance, CRISPR-Cas9, it's a technology for genetic editing. There's a great anecdote I talk about in the book, a guy called David Ishii. He was a biohacker. He is a biohacker. And in 2017, he wanted, and he's also a dog breeder. And Dalmatians have a particular disposition to getting gout, right? And he worked out the single letter of DNA required to stop this from happening. He could have done it. Didn't require a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical R&D, you know, center to find out how to do it. He could have done it with his home lab, cost him tens of thousands of dollars. He writes to um, the relevant federal agency, the FDA. He says, I want to do this to stop um, my Dalmatians I breed getting gout. Now, within a couple of weeks, the FDA release a press release uh, and they say that we will treat edited uh, genetic material the same as a pharmaceutical drug. That is to say, it will be subject to patent. So what does that mean? We have at present thousands of biological conditions where just a single edited strand of DNA would be able to heal people. So think uh, Parkinson's, think Huntingdon's, think sickle cell anemia, hundreds of things like that. And if you look at the leading sort of science in regards to this thing called CRISPR-Cas9, 
it's nothing new. Genetic engineering is not new. What it's done is it basically means as a technique, you see such massively uh, falling costs that basically anybody can do it. You know, any university now can have what was five years ago, even, um, you know, an unparalleled biotech lab. And if just the sort of low hanging fruit of this is eliminating those thousands of, uh, you know, single DNA strand conditions, single nucleotide rather, uh, uh, conditions like I say, sickle cell anemia, Huntingdon's, um, Parkinson's. If it's just that, great. But the suspicion is it's probably a lot more than that. So, for instance, we can start to build in uh, resistance to a bunch of conditions. Now, people say, well, that's terrible. That's eugenics. That's genetic engineering. And this is why it needs to be subject to political control. On the one hand, yes, it is. On the other hand, it's no different to vaccinations. The difference being we're changing the sort of informational response in your body before you're born or in utero rather than when you're a small child or a newborn. So what does that mean? It means that all of a sudden information becomes an incredibly central part of medical healthcare, of what we presently think of as the pharmaceutical industry. And all of a sudden pharmaceuticals become dematerialized in a very similar way to films and movies over the late 1990s, early 2000s. Now the response, if you're a big pharmaceutical company, would have to be the same. You would have to impose scarcity. You don't want to all of a sudden eliminate Huntingdon's and Parkinson's and uh, sickle cell anemia because all these people consume all these drugs to mitigate the symptoms of these things. So that that's the sort of that's the fundamental proposition is that market rationality. There's a great quote here actually. I've got the book open on this page for some reason. Uh, but Larry Summers and Bradford DeLong wrote this a month before Napster was taken down in August 2001. And they say, the most basic condition for economic efficiency is that price equal marginal cost. With information goods, the social and marginal cost of distribution is close to zero. They go on to say, if information goods are to be distributed to their marginal cost of production, zero, they cannot be created and produced by entrepreneurial firms. If information goods are to be created and produced, companies must be able to anticipate selling their products to someone at a profit. Then they finally conclude what the solution is. Temporary monopoly power and profits are the reward needed to spur private enterprise. This is from Larry Summers, very much an establishment economist. Hmm. The right way to think about this complex set of issues is not clear, but it is clear that the competitive paradigm cannot be fully appropriate. We do not yet know what the right replacement paradigm will be. So there is basically an admission that as information becomes an increasingly um, valuable constitutive part of the overall commodity, you have to see an increase in monopoly, a turn to rents and so on. So like I say, we've seen that in the last 20 years with Napster and Netflix, with Hulu, with Amazon Prime. You're right, those are marginal parts of the economy. But that will extend ever further. That will go to, like I say, uh, food, to human biology, to energy, uh, eventually to labor. The price of labor will collapse as you see you know, huge improvements in machine learning, AI, robotics. And so all of a sudden, we have what could potentially be across the economy, not not maybe all of the economy, but huge pools of things that should be free or ultra low cost. And the metaphor here is if you come to my house and you say, look, can I have a cup of instant coffee? I give it to you. I don't think it's a big deal. Or if you say, can I have a lighter and I give you the lighter and you don't give it back to me, it doesn't really matter. I can go and buy another lighter for 30p. Now, given these tendencies, that kind of mindset, that kind of culture, that kind of abundance should permeate quite a lot of human existence. I mean, you might say, well, maybe all of it, uh, but maybe not all of it. But, you know, certainly within the next several decades, there should be sort of big pools of things that we can treat like that. So healthcare, education, uh, probably food, 
housing, etc. Uh, we could talk about where that where that sits alongside a sort of historic project of social democracy. Okay, ultimately, but, ultimately, that, so, might, that sounds that probably sounds quite unambitious. But then the end point is obviously probably quite a qualitatively different kind of society to what we presently have. Okay, so I want to push you a bit more on this because you say um, it's not kind of it's not a technological determinism. Um, it's a politics associated with the project, but. Um, surely the point is that uh, what you're describing is simply the um, the dynamics of capitalism. So we will get more, uh, you know, we'll get AI, um, we'll get machines, we'll get more machines with um, that improve productivity dramatically. We'll get um, the possibility for um, manipulating our genome and all of these things. Um, but it will all be contained within a particular framework. And so there won't be any, um, these develop, technological developments of their own accord can't push us anywhere. Um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, this is the, I mean, and I imagine you talk about it in the book, but, you know, this goes back to Keynes's claim from the 30s that already by now that we should be working, we would only need to work a few hours a week if it was, um, and we could still enjoy a life of leisure. And yep. the reason that we don't is that capitalism finds ways to perpetuate particular forms of social structure, the way um, wage labor and so on. So surely, I mean, these things won't, um, you're su- in what you were just saying, it sounded as if you're suggesting that the technology itself inevitably pushes in a particular direction. No, I'm saying that, for instance, there will be, there will have, to, there will, what I will say is inevitable under capitalist dynamics is that inevitably, given these changes, there would, as I've said, under capitalism, if you're producing a good or service, you need to make a profit. So there would have to be a turn, as we saw with music, with film, towards rent, towards monopoly. And so that's what, you know, the economy will increasingly resemble. So this chap, David Issue, who wants to change the, 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 the genetic material of his dog, he wasn't allowed to do that. So what would that look like in the future? You know, you might have ultimately, like right now we have something very similar with patented pharmaceuticals, right? You saw it with retroviral drugs and, um, you know, the crisis of AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa in the 2000s. It's kind of been somewhat surmounted. You can imagine that, but really, you know, taken up a couple of notches with what these technologies can do. And so... I'm talking about in order to maintain profit, you see an imposition of artificial scarcity amid conditions of abundance. You know, another one could be renewable energy. It's a, this is an amazing statistic. Enough sun hits the Earth's surface in 90 minutes to meet human demand for an entire year. So we've always had a prodigious amount of energy coming to us through solar energy. We've just never known really or economically how to capture, store and distribute it. Mm. By the early 2020s, that will begin to change. And because solar or renewable technologies are getting, they're basically getting cheaper by double digit percentage points basically every year, have been since the 50s. Now, if that continues through the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, if you're a capitalist enterprise, it's very difficult to sell something which is getting permanently cheaper. And so that that's at odds with capitalist, the capitalist mode of production. Now, I'm not saying that blows up capitalism. Somebody like a John Holloway would say that, right? What I'm saying is there is uh, the conditions there for a potentially new kind of political project based on uh, technological changes which have to be met with uh, an accordant politics uh, and okay. that's not in- that's not inevitable actually things could you know things could get far worse than at present capitalism may actually be quite good i personally wouldn't like to see for instance uh, the chinese state get hold of an all-powerful ai um yeah. so there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack there but well, i, I want to come at the Sorry, Aaron, I just wanted to come at this from a slightly different angle and, and maybe even an opposed angle to, to the line of Phil's questioning, which is that maybe this technology doesn't emerge uh, precisely because 
the lack of uh, forceful working class movement to which will raise wages and make stuff like automation actually attractive to capital isn't currently happening. Uh, so actually, we end up with a very degenerate, undynamic capitalism, which at the same time feels like it's speeding out of control. I mean, that's one of the paradoxes, I guess, of our age, that things feel like they're speeding out of control. There's new technology everywhere. And yet it's less innovative and less dynamic than it was a century ago. So I, I mean, is, should not the starting point instead be actually just basic um, working class organizing for, you know, basically trade unionism? I mean, is that not a, a better starting point? Well, no, the start, I mean, the, the last three chapters are basically about what the political program is, and that is the starting point. You know, it's very much the actual concrete proposals of things like the Preston model, um, universal basic services, etc. But ultimately, those have to be situated within a broader understanding of what's happening. Otherwise, you know, the, the, uh, the, the forces of capital, elite class interests will always override you. You need to have a vision about where the economy is going uh, with, with these things fundamentally underpinning it. So um, you you said, for instance, the what if the technological change doesn't happen? So, for instance, if we look at what what companies, and it's not just companies obviously doing this, you also have nation states. So that a lot of these technologies are already here. CRISPR-Cas9 is already here. Who's the world's leader in CRISPR-Cas9? Well, because U.S. evangelicals are very um, ambivalent around mucking around with human genetic material, it means that the Chinese regulatory kind of framework is much better for this kind of research. You know, if you if you Google CRISPR-Cas9 China. And you look at some of the papers coming out um, uh, and some of the experiments being done there, you know, it's remarkable. So it's not just capitalist enterprises doing this. If we look at, for instance, the, the great technologies of the 20th century, jet engines, nuclear energy, um, uh, the Internet, these are all state funded. Uh, so, you know, on the one hand, yes, you're right. Worker, worker struggle is one variable in this. And it's absolutely true that big sections of the economy are nowhere near as automated as they could or arguably should be because you know, the price of human labor is so low, there's no incentive as a capitalist to do that. Or you've had globalization where you can just relocate it. That's that's true. Uh, but also, I don't think we should underestimate the capacity of nation states as um, loci of research and development and technological um, advance. So I wanted to, um, so to kind of flip it from the other angle to think of it slightly differently. So what's interesting to me is that... Um, fully automated luxury communism is now becoming a thing in Britain at the moment. Because um, one thing that Britain is famous for among the Western world um, is its productivity is notoriously lower than comparable countries, mm. um, high income members of the OECD, productivity growth is dismal. Um, and so, well, you know, there's all this talk about um, shiny new, uh, you know, shiny new technologies. And you've got a fantastic kind of front cover that I've seen on Amazon <laughs> With the um, machine serving the serving the martini, is it? Um, with a hammer, with a hammer and sickle. With a hammer and sickle. So, but doesn't you know? So, improving productivity. I mean, given how dismal Britain's productivity is, doesn't the kind of changes that are needed are just much more basic, aren't they? So, say new labour market policies, um, public infrastru infrastructural investment, um, vocational training, uh, giving employers incentives to train and retain staff much more basic than um, kind of rolling out um, shiny new robots and uh, technology for everyone. I mean, that, I mean, like I say, the political perspectives is precisely that. You know, it talks about socialising finance. It talks about expanding the cooperatively and worker-owned economy through socialised finance, through municipal protectionism effectively. 
Um, it talks about the rolling out of universal basic services. But the thing is, these universal basic services are being rolled out with the understanding of what's happening technologically. So what does that mean? I'll give you an example. Look at bus services. So Scottish Labour recently talked about uh, a potential UBS of bus services. Now, if we work on the premise that energy is going to get cheaper every year for as long as we live, because of renewables, because of what's happening to lithium-ion batteries, PV cells, etc. And if we work on the premise that ultimately, you know, actually self-driving cars are probably a fair way away, but it would be quite easy to have single lanes, relatively, you know, medium speed, you know, within 10, 20 years, we'll probably have, for instance, tr logistics, trucks will probably be self-driving, right? So it's perfectly feasible to think, well, in response to somebody saying, well, we can't afford a UBS of universal, you know, bus transit, well, if the price of manufacturing the things is falling, if the price of the labor driving them is falling, and obviously it, ideally it should, we should have fewer humans doing it, you'd still want guards, et cetera, but fewer, fewer people providing the service because technology is now subordinate to human need, not profit. And if the energy powering is falling them in price, then what, why shouldn't it be a UBS? And so that's where all of a sudden this sort of technological overview of the long of the long game actually becomes quite useful for a very short-term, immediate political demand. Uh, you could apply that elsewhere. For instance, aging, we can't afford the NHS. Well, then you can talk about a, a raft of technologies, which actually mean, yes, actually universal healthcare has never been more eminently practical. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think it very much doesn't have to be at the sake of shorter term, social democratic, pragmatic politics. Uh, I, 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 you know, I would, I would, uh, I'd have to disagree with that. So given the, um, the structure of the modern, you know, the ten, the structure of most modern Western economies tends to be more service-based than in, industrial-based. Um, yeah. How does that shift? How does the shift to the service sector um, in advanced economies? How does that fit with the story you want to tell, and how does it relate to improved productivity? Because notoriously, um, improving productivity in service industries is much more difficult, say, than just rolling out new machines on a factory assembly line, for instance. Yeah, I mean, it's a great. The thing about productivity is well, it's a great question. So I think there's a few things going on here. Britain clearly has terrible productivity because we have just this infantile ruling class, right? And we can talk about the. Uh, the reasons as to why that is, the Nan Anderson thesis, how it's not actually not a capitalist ruling class, how empire impeded, you know, innovation, a culture of innovation, really until we joined the European Union, one might argue. Well, until, certainly until the late 1950s. We could talk about all of that. And that, that, that's, probably, that's probably all true. I mean, most people don't know this, but I think Thailand produces more cars than Britain, you know. And then somebody like a Paul Mason, because he loves the car industry in this country, will say, well, we produce more by value. OK, somebody's put a a Land Rover Evoke badge on the front. But there's no reason why <laughs> why Thailand can't produce cars as good as what, you know, right now, for instance, the Chinese car industry, the, the argument is with electric vehicles, all of a sudden now China's going to be competitive with Japan, with the United States, the Europeans making cars. And I, I agree with you. Another, another great stat is um, robots, I think, per, per head in the UK. You know, we are, we are way down. We are nowhere near the US with Germany, with France. Um, with Japan, with Korea, nowhere, China, nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. So that's all true. And that's all very specific to the UK. But a more general point, I suppose, about the productivity data is uh, there's the great line that comes out in the 1980s. We can see the information revolution everywhere except the productivity statistics. And how do we measure productivity? We get GDP, we get all the things in circulation, all the goods and services being sold and, and bought. And then if we want to measure that per capita, we divide it by the number of people. Now, how do we measure productivity? Well, we get GDP and we look at all the hours worked and then we measure on a per hour worked basis. Now, on that measure, British productivity hasn't really moved for about 10 years. 
GDP has gone up, but that's because we have more people here generally. So GDP per capita is actually GDP per capita stayed quite flat measured per dollar. It's actually fallen quite significantly. Again, you don't really hear that very often. Um, but what I think is a variable in all of this part of that is a collapse in sort of the British economic model since 2008. But alongside that is this technological shift, which means that increasingly value isn't showing up in those statistics. And I don't think that's just particular um, to the UK. So a really mundane and silly and facile example of this, and I'm sure you'll then respond, well, that's a mundane example, which would be true, is uh, Wikipedia. You know, you have access to this great resource, which has so much value to all, literally all of us, right? I mean, I, I don't know, it would be a great, it would be, if you look at obviously the search rankings for anything you Google, Wikipedia is always right up there, which is a testament to how many people are using it. And Wikipedia, how, how valuable is Wikipedia? How much value have you taken from Wikipedia? How much have you paid for Wikipedia? And all of a sudden, you know, it's very difficult to measure all that value. Well, we measure value through the price mechanism. The point is, in a society where information is increasingly free, that becomes quite difficult. So, for instance, you might have uh, CRISPR-Cas9, the NHS might get on top of that and say, look, we're going to now remove 100 genetically inherited conditions. Uh, and that can happen over five years. And the next generation, there'll be no further generations that will have this, like with smallpox and, you know, the World Health Organization after the 70s. You know, where does that show up in the productivity statistics? You know? I'm a, yeah, I'm, I think that's fine. I actually don't have a problem with even the mundane example you gave. <laughs> but, but I did want to move on to the question of, of work because we haven't really touched on that yet. And obviously the question of automation brings with it the question of technological unemployment. And I wanted to know what your thinking is on this at this stage because... I think, uh, you know, the question of post-work, we've discussed it a lot on this on this uh, podcast, uh, is a problematic one. I mean, it, it really puts into question a Marxist conception of politics whereby work is a site of leverage that labor has against capital. And if people no longer uh, are gainfully employed in, in capitalist manner, that does take away that leverage. So what is the vision of politics then? So I, maybe I, I need to ask you first, really, what is your, your vision of um of automation and the con and the consequences of it well yeah i think i think in the near term i, I obviously like the idea of i mean the, the book also overtly talks about a post-work post-scarcity society uh but given the challenges of climate change demographic aging uh, massive inequality you know i think we're going to find enough work for people over the next 20 30 years um, you know, we need to rewild huge swathes of the planet. We obviously need to retrofit all of our buildings. We need to install huge PV capacity. We need why, why, to why do we need to rewild? We need to rewild. Well, we, inevitably, we would rewild if all of a sudden we're starting to use cultured meat. All of a sudden, naturally, you'll be using far less land for agriculture than what we presently do anyway. So that, you know, we, that we would we want sort of like... Um, would we want a kind of a heath or would we want a nice big forest? I mean, I suppose that's a question for the publics to discuss, but I personally would quite, you know, quite like forests and wolves and stuff like that. In terms of I'm all right with that. No, no. You don't want wolves. I don't buy this. Let's not get stuck on this one. No, no, I mean, the question of rewilding is also about, okay, how do we rapidly reduce concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere? You know, it doesn't need a new technology. It just, you know, needs to plant loads of trees. And China, China's planted a lot of trees in the last 10 years. You know, people talk about the Green New Deal. That's that's the kind of thing we need to be doing. And it's not that we sacrifice anything to do that. As I'm saying, if if these changes happen in agriculture, we're using far less land, labor, energy, water, far lower CO2 and methane footprint for agriculture all of a sudden. It will mean that those, that land can be given over to something else. 
So the rewilding strikes me as um, regression in a way, or a weird kind of um, a weird uh, nostalgia and a refusal to face up to the full implications of the technology instead of um, mastering nature and transforming mm. the relationship with the natural world. Mm. It's an, instead kind of trying to restore something um, which is only a kind of nostalgic vision of what life was. And I don't, I don't want wolves um, because, you know, I mean, everything <laughs> I've seen about them makes them seem dangerous <laughs> and nasty. But I mean, I take, you know, rewilding understanding, I take, I take your point, but I would say also though, surely it's just nuclear power we need. So I put this point to, um, yeah. James Medway, when we had him on um, a few pods ago, a few yeah. podcasts ago, and um, you know, surely it's not even trees. All we need is, and we have the technology, like you say. Yeah. All we need is lots and lots of nuclear power, and maybe investment, lots of investment in fusion power as well to make it viable. So, on the one hand, that's absolutely true. If we if we had to decarbonize in the next five years, absolutely nuclear power would have to play a role in that, and that's that's definitely something to talk about. The reason why I don't think it's right is because as i've said you see changes in the price performance of wind of solar it's falling by double digit double digit percentage points pretty much every year it has been for a really long time nuclear energy is it seems to be actually price inflationary because you know actually what we do with sort of the the after product is actually turning out to be far far more complex than we initially thought now there's a certain counter argument and bill gates was investing in these sort of micro nuclear facilities they'd be far cheaper than present ones and so on that may happen. But what we know about nuclear energy at present is that it's it's not price volatile like fossil fuels, but it's certainly not deflationary. It's certainly not getting cheaper for the rest of your life. And that is happening with wind. It is happening with solar. So last year, there were a bunch of uh, wind turbines. They went to auction. And actually, the kilowatts they were producing per hour, per pound, it was price competitive already with nuclear. And these are wind turbines which will be ready to go in the early 2020s. So that's my argument in regards to why not nuclear. Although that said, I think it's a perfectly coherent argument to say, well, given um, given this would be such a quick transition, given uh, you know we wouldn't have massive levels of storage. Obviously, energy all of a sudden moves huge amounts of present energy production go over to electricity. It's a major disruption. You probably need some nuclear, maybe twenty percent of the energy mix to ensure you know uh, continuation, or if there's an emergency, you can amp up production, etc. I mean, I can buy that. But I, I, I think if, you, if you're looking at energy and you're looking at the tendencies towards zero margin cost of getting cheaper forever, you know, you're looking at wind, you're looking at solar. So that's my response to nuclear. So, OK, uh, just one more question on these on um, the place of technology, I guess, in contemporary society before we talk more specifically about the politics. And that question is, I guess, to push you a bit more to. Uh, contextualize, I suppose, your own thinking and your book and your project associated with um, with fully automated luxury communism in the British context. How do we know that it's not, or how can how do we know that you're not merely expressing um, the need for British capitalism being so low productivity, being so mm. dismal, um, being kind of so labour intensive, being um, uh, so dependent? on lots of low-wage, low-skilled labor to function, extensive growth rather than intensive technological-led growth. How do we know that you're not just expressing the wish of British capitalism to kind of break through all of that and to enter a new realm? What a great question. I mean, that's, that's that's certainly one interpretation of it. Like, you know, I'd rather BAE systems, I'd want to be put into public ownership and tasked with 
you know, greening the economy, solving a bunch of problems. I mean, the book is situated within a set of crises, ageing, inequality, climate change, etc. BAE, and it's, I think it's the bigger empl- biggest employer of engineers in the country, BAE should be trying to solve these problems rather than make weapons. Now, a quote-unquote enlightened capitalist who cares about the interests of the British capitalist class, I imagine would think the same thing. You're absolutely right. Um, but the question is about what's that being subordinated to? And I'm saying it should be subordinated to less work, um, a greater amount of use values being given to ordinary people and subject to democratic control. So I, th- I do think ultimately, I do think neoliberalism is on the way out. I think ultimately also the far right hasn't really got a coherent political project. So, well, not in Europe anyway, I might be wrong, long term. Um, it certainly can't deliver rising living standards for anyone. Mm-hmm. It certainly can't really address the climate crisis. So the question, I think, ultimately is, like you say, it's going to be down to, and maybe Britain's the front line in this, is a kind of enlightened green capitalism and what I'm talking about. And I, I absolutely agree with you, actually. At certain points, the lines between those two can be quite indistinct. Just by virtue of the kinds of coalitions and alliances we're going to need to build um, in order to break with neoliberalism and, and to ensure that we don't see an insurgent far right. Hey, just a quick insert, though I'm loath to break up this really interesting conversation. You'll have seen we've launched our Bunga membership on Patreon. You can sign up for a basic $5 a month or more. Our fortnightly episodes, though, will remain free, with additional episodes and bonus stuff for members only. It's patreon.com slash bungacast. And huge thanks again to everyone who has supported us since the beginning of the year. We really do appreciate it. If you're new to us and this is your first Alpha Bunga Bunga episode, Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at BungaCast. Okay, I'll shut up now. One the one dividing line, one sharp dividing line between, uh, say, the most enlightened, um, the most enlightened, greenest, rewildingest capitalist you could find, and um, these the are <laughs> these are there's a big. I mean, re- I'm not. I don't want to rewild. No, 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 I'm, I'm just I'm, some I'm, fetish I'm, for nature, which is a legitimate <laughs> thing. I agree with you, but no, no, I'm messing with you, but. The point being, anyway, you know, the the sharp dividing line between um, between say an enlightened capitalist mm-hmm. and um, the left, the sharp traditionally the sharp dividing line was the dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm-hmm. So a working class state, a proletarian state with its own political institutions that entrenches the rule and the control of the majority, um, and that this is not only um, the dividing line, but also necessary, according to the classical Marxist canon anyway, as the transition from socialism to communism yeah. and the communism being which we haven't talked about. So we've talked plenty about um, uh, kind of technology, productivity, economic structures, the labor market and so on. But the other definition of communism was a stateless society. Mm-hmm. So where does the dictatorship of the proletariat and the withering away of the state fit within the picture you want to paint? Yeah, it's a great question. So I talk a bit about the distinction between socialism and, and communism. And I refer to Capital Volume 3. Marx talks about socialism as still being in the realm of necessity, where there's scarcity. Um, work uh, that looks to all intents and purposes kind of like wage labour or it's not. Um, and then he talks about communism, which is an escape from the realm of necessity into the realm of freedom. Uh, and there you see uh the end of any distinction between work and play, between mental and physical labour and so on. So communism is quite distinct from socialism. And Marx 
said something else, which is quite frustrating. He said, I'm not here to write recipes for the cookshops of the future. So the cookshops of the future he was referring to, although he often did in his in his defense, the cookshops of the future were basically what you're talking about here. So that transition first to socialism, which is as much a political as an economic project, which is to say it's a reordering of the, the constitutional um, and legal ordering of society. That's the socialism bit. And then as I understand it, that then lays the path to communism, which is to all intents and purposes, a technological outgrowth of socialism. So the sort of the political transition is taking place between capitalism and socialism. And then the socialism, he he would claim, would veer gradually to the ever diminishing importance of human labor and overall production, the fusion of mental and physical labor, the end of any distinction between work and play. I think broadly speaking, that's an outgrowth of technological change. The politics precedes it. Uh, what I view is the sort of the historical agent today, you're saying of, of course, the proletariat. I mean, I would agree anybody who has to sell their labor for a wage to live is on our side and we need to transform society. I would add to that, obviously, people in unwaged work, whether it be um, social reproduction of labor power, whether it be, you know, raising kids, um, you would add it. Or you'd also add a sort of a global, quote unquote, unnecessary act which will only get bigger because automation means that that kind of trajectory of development, which we saw with South Korea, with Japan, with China, that probably won't ever happen or not to the same extent in Nigeria, Indonesia, simply because humans aren't as necessary for production of manufactured goods. So I would say that it's effectively it's kind of uh, the multitude is the best way to is the best way to put it, although I don't really agree with much the politics anymore sort of espoused by somebody like an Antonio Negri. Mm. The multitude is a good way to put it, but more or less it maps onto a sort of economistic Marxist understanding of the working class. Although culturally in terms of social signifiers, etc., they might not look like the sort of industrial working class, industrial proletariat. Um, it's people who fundamentally need to sell their labor for a wage who don't live off rents who don't live off assets who don't live off the work of others i'm glad actually you mentioned that i was going to ask you about the politics of today because you had suggested it uh, and ask you about what the political program of fully fully automated luxury communism looks like so this is going to be i guess two prongs one is how does the how does that very optimistic futuristic vision connect to current consciousness uh, current class consciousness to the extent that it exists which is, I guess you could say, defensive, uh, and it is you know, reacting to a, I don't know, world spiraling out of control and a desire to hold on to some certainties that there might be. Uh, and you can interpret that in various different ways. One could see the Brexit vote as uh, one aspect of that or one permutation of that. Um, but I also want to ask about this thing that you finished with, the, na- the notion of the multitude, because that's a situation in which um, I guess politics is more political in the sense that it doesn't take place in the workplace because you have this. Uh, mm. how, how how did you term it? The unnecessariat or yeah yeah. yeah. Um, I hadn't actually heard that term before, but I mean that's basically it. That does that not mean that the vision of politics is an insurrectionist one, the one that you know the the masses just take hold of the public square uh, rather than it be rather than progress being eked out incrementally uh, in the workplace and perhaps explodes beyond the bounds of it yeah so there's there's obviously a certain autonomy of the political i mean i'm i i'm not prone i think a lot of the insurrectionist stuff i think a lot of the insurrectionist stuff grows out of a kind of a fetish for non reproduction and so if you look at the growth of say ruin porn after 2008 
and you know i lo- i love i love a good i love to watch just to anybody listening sort of yeah i was just going to say clarify that quite quite urgently <laughs> i i love uh, you know you know the lukey the riot dog you know uh, the mm. people are familiar <laughs> with this it was, yeah. I find these things interesting and you know and fun and so on, but I think that, that fetish for the non-reproduction of, of, of capitalism through you know permanent insurrection. You see this in you know I love for instance Tiku and the Invisible Committee. There's a great deal to learn from that 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 sort of that that of work. I do think that 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 fetish for non-reproduction, which I say you see also in ruin porn. Um, I think it's really a dead end politically, yeah. and it's why I would pay. For instance, in Britain. I would place a great deal of importance on democratic political party, which um, isn't isn't you know a trade union. Obviously, trade unions are huge, and clearly, leverage in the workplace is, I think, arguably, yeah, is still probably the leading uh, the leading force of, of political economic change. Uh, but you have a political party to transcend that. Obviously, we're an aging population. You have more pensioners. Uh, you have people that work multiple jobs, etc. And I think one of the queries for the left for years was. Which they love, you know, they, they love these Jeremiads where everything's going to shit. And they say, oh, how do we encompass all these identities? And, you know, we need local grassroots democracy. Mm. And, you know, the political party to an extent, I mean, you might not agree it's the Labour Party, but the party form to an extent deals with a lot, a lot of those questions. Um, and I think seeing a return to the party form in, in Europe and North America, I think, is quite a key thing. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think party politics does a lot of that and party politics and that's one of the projects of why i'm involved in labor you know is i don't just want to see a westminster labor government i mean that would be great but i also want people to have an ex- expanded understanding of politics which is more than just voting and almost counterintuitively that actually means getting involved with the labor party rather than ignoring it i think well i'm i'm on board with that uh, i think we then do need to segue on to the big political question of the day in the UK um, I, as to as to how these things play in uh, in the developing world. I guess I heard that your book is going to be translated into Portuguese. Is that right for for the Brazilian market? So that's right. Yeah. So yeah. far we've got Swedish, Brazilian, Portuguese. Um, what else? Korean and Japanese. Well, okay. So it'll be interesting to see how that idea sort of plays in in a context like Brazil, where actually the precaritization has been accelerating. Uh, over the past two decades, so and you know has been facing deindustrialization and so on. So that'll be interesting to see. But I, I just want to park that for a moment and actually d- turn to Brexit, as we as we said we would. Um, what is your current view on on Brexit? What's the state of play? Because I don't think obviously no one's happy, right? Yeah, um, I mean I'm I'm always optimistic, and then I suppose that's just a sort of personality trait, and you don't want to confuse that for you know a correct political analysis. I think, I think fundamentally if you look at the european elections i suppose that's salient to your audience they're coming up what's going to happen the brexit party is probably going to get more or less the same as what ukip got in 2014 i think probably slightly higher maybe five percent higher which will be huge but the reality is and people have short memories you know ukip coming first in a national election in 2014 was also huge the bmp getting almost a million votes in 2009 was also huge uh so that's not new you know you know the smp in 2014 pushing Indiref to 45-55, getting all those seats in 2015 in Scotland. That's not, these are quite new times. Uh, and so the, these, are, these are new times rather, but they've been here for a while, so since 2008, right? The 2009 European election was when the BNP got almost a million votes. Um, so strange things will happen in the European elections coming up, but that, that's, that's not necessarily something to worry about. Strange things have been happening for a, a while now. The big shift is going to be the Tories are going to collapse, 
right? So obviously UKIP came first last time, but the Tories were still there or thereabouts. The Tories are going to collapse. The question is, where does most of that vote go? It probably, you know, a lot of it goes to the Brexit party. Where's it going to go long term? So that's one change. Another change is the Lib Dems are reviving. To a lesser extent, the Greens are doing well. I don't think the Greens are going to pick up many MEBPs next week. The Lib Dems are coming back slightly. Now, people are going to look at the Lib Dems and go, let's say the Lib Dems even finish second on like 15, 16% next week. They're finishing second on 15% in elections with 35% turnout, which are purely about Europe. That's terrible. That is absolutely terrible for basically the only the party has made their their core being their raison d'etre is remain. Yeah, and I think that shock that's actually shocking. I would have expected them to do far better. So if you look at the local elections in two thousand and three, a couple of months after the uh, Iraq War, the Lib Dems actually got thirty percent in those local elections, which was the same as Labour. We, we've just had local elections here, and the Lib Dems got nineteen percent, right? And and so people that say, well, Brexit's like you know iraq well it's clearly not right it's clearly not i mean obviously normatively speaking it's obviously not that's ridiculous disgusting thing to say but in terms of elect you know the electoral payoff for the lib dems it's not that either mm-hmm. so i think there will be something of a recovery for the lib dems i don't think that would be reflected in a general election um and my biggest concern is we're moving towards no deal and, you know, intelligent leftists could say, well, no deal's good. You know, the left could have a no deal. I mean, that's arguably true. But the reality is a no deal with um, a Tory government or a Tory government propped up by a new Brexit party or whatever we would have, uh, a no deal would necessarily mean a sort of trade deal with Trump's America. Uh, and so, you know, I, I could just about stomach a no deal Brexit under Jeremy Corbyn. I think that you could actually see some really interesting things happen. Under a Conservative government, I'd be quite worried uh so where it ends up i don't know my worry is that we have a second referendum again again sort of liberal elite think that no deal wouldn't be on that it would have to be because 40 percent of the country wants it you know they can't just keep on taking and taking from these people they can't just say oh actually the first referendum doesn't count and the thing you want by the way won't be on it so my what my worry is we move to a second referendum that poisons the next couple of years of British politics. It dampens down the kind of insurgent sense of political possibility, especially on the left. And then no deal wins and it powers a sort of right wing project to which there's then two responses. Well, where does the left sit in within that no deal thing? I think as long as the right's in power, mm. you know, you saw Claire Fox okay. so- taking part. Sorry, go on. No, no. Well, I just wanted to say, I mean, I think Phil will have more to say on this than I will. I mean, I'm in Brazil, so I don't follow it as intimately. But my sense is that the political elite will do everything possible to avoid no deal being a serious option on the table. I was going to say, I mean, I think the no deal won't happen simply because the capitalist class won't let it, which isn't to say that it couldn't happen um, inadvertently by accident. But I think it's um, it's simply the, the parliament as it stands and the ruling elite, the ruling class, in as insofar as it exists, I think is um, it would be a moral, it would be a collapse of the British state, the British mm-hmm. ruling class, effectively no deal. So I think for that reason, it's simply um, highly unlikely. But I wanted to, I guess, uh, beyond Brexit, to contextualise it within um, and to uh, pick you up on two things you've mentioned before. So you once called the European Union the least democratic political system in the Western world, and it was a great tenor phrase, and I, I use it frequently citing you and i wanted just to see if you still stand by that and if you still think it's um fundamentally uh, a barrier in the way of greater democracy yeah i mean i, I, I mean 
I'm very open about saying that remain in reform isn't a thing. It's never going to be a thing, <laughs> which is why you're seeing this pivot now to remain in revolt, which is basically, <laughs> well, we'll remain, but we just won't do anything the European Commission tells us to do. Well, you know, you could do that in a customs union as well. I mean, you know, it would, or I don't really get the thinking, but the idea of remain in reform is is implausible. I mean, we've got these European elections next week for the European Parliament. I don't like to go into this too much now because obviously it's such a such a, a sort of rancorous political issue. But we aren't electing parliamentarians to a parliament who are, you know, subordinate to parties. These groupings they're in on the left and the centre and the right and then, you know, the various right groups and the Greens, these aren't political parties in a sort of formal sense that we've understood for the last couple of hundred years. There's something entirely different. Um and who do they represent? You go on your street and you ask the average person, who's your MEP? Right. They won't know who they are. Now, I understand yeah, simultaneously how many people know that, how many people know their MP or their councillor. And that speaks to a broader sort of degeneration in our political culture. But MEP, I can guarantee you, is absolutely at the bottom. I'd be surprised if one in a hundred people knew who their MEP was. No, um, you're right, of course. And I think that speaks to the sort of democratic deficit at the level of the European Union. Some people say, well, we can we can overcome that. Uh, we need to give powers to the parliament, take them away from the commission. But look, if, if one in a hundred people don't know who their MEP is, how is that going to work? How, that's, that's probably, if anything, that's going to be less accountable because at least with the present situation, you know, we, we have the Council of the Ministers, we have the European Council, it's intergovernmental, that is to say, elected heads of state, nation states engaging with one another. Then you have the Commission, then you have the European Parliament. The idea we would abrogate more powers to the European Parliament when nobody knows who these people are, hasn't really got a formal party system. I mean, it's... It's, I think it's a real backward step in democratic culture, actually. Yeah. And it's a shame. It's a shame that the right owns this. And they own, they own it because they've been doing talking about this for 30 years, right? Okay, so, let, um, so let, let's actually get to this because this is the maybe the crux of the matter. The it, I mean, I guess maybe it's a bit tragic that into the political desert of, you know, the 2000s of 2016, well, you know, until 2016, basically, that this this possibility of this referendum emerged and it emerged from the right and it actually did lead to a sort of revolt. I mean, you know, the... It still remains the case, I think, or maybe you want, I want to ask you this. You know, do you still see the Leave vote as a as a as a revolt against elites? So, the follow-on question to that is: How can the left lead Brexit, given that the Labour Party membership is, to a certain extent, uh, bound by its Remain voting certain Remain voting constituency, or it's at least torn? So, how how do you chart that way forward? Well, so firstly, two thirds of Labour seats voted Leave. Yeah. Um, two thirds of Labour target seats voted Leave. So, from a purely electoral um, sort of set of motivations. No, absolutely. Sorry, I should have said the Labour Party membership. I, I might have yeah, said yeah, constituency. No, no, sorry, no, no, yeah. that's absolutely right. So, you've got the memberships kind of at odds with, and the membership tends to be focused in in bigger cities naturally. Um, and so, the memberships at odds basically with these Labour seats. And we have to put another cleavage over this, which is of course age. Right, older Labour voters are going to more likely to to be Leave voters. And then, you know, alongside that, older voters generally voted to leave, right? And so somebody like, again, a Paul Mason or I'm trying to think of a remaining reform person, you know, um, who are the big thinkers for remaining reform? Some of, the, some of the smarter people around like FBP and stuff who don't want Labour to die would say, well, look, this is your core vote. It's your membership. And ultimately, that's the this is the electorate of tomorrow, which may well be true. I mean, we know, for instance, in, in Italy, it's not true. Younger people are actually the most Eurosceptic. Um, that's mm-hmm, yeah. that's contingent that may change one day we also know for instance that the the very oldest actually voted to remain 
and that it was really sort of the pe- people in their 80s voted to remain. The argument is, well, they remember the war and so on. So this idea that, oh, well, they've died now and now people would have remained. That's actually statistically not true. Um, if anything, Leave would win by maybe a bigger margin at the moment. But the, yeah, the, the argument is this is the electorate of tomorrow. And I just think that's a really bad way to proceed politically. I mean, it's a good it's a good thing to think, you know, OK, when 10 years time, what will be the most salient issues, et cetera? No, uh, a national care service, for instance, because we've got an aging population. Fine. But to presume that, you know, um, the majority of the electorate in 10 years time would w- want to be hinged to a project which will be falling apart at the seams because the eurozone will be, uh, I think is is strange. Even, even the question it's of free movement. Yeah, it's more than strange. I mean, it's... Um, <laughs> It's deranged, I think, and um, I think you're absolutely right. But it's also an abandonment of politics. It's um, imagining that things automatically follow from demographic shifts, um, social changes, rather than having to actually persuade people to particular um, points of view. Um, so maybe on a less on a less optimistic note, um, and I think we should probably finish on an optimistic one after this, but uh, you had another tweet which also stayed with me some time ago now where you noted the degree of polarization in the country over Brexit and you were saying this is how civil wars start. Mm. And it was in the context of the tremendous intransigence um, of the Remainer elite, effectively, the mm. unwillingness to accept um, a democratic outcome, the willingness to subvert it, to outflank it, to delegitimize it, to call into question the capacities of ordinary voters and so on. Do you think the country is still just as divided? I mean, it's. I think it's absolutely as divided. And I think that tweet as well, it's not, that's not said sort of flippantly. Um, if you look at the challenges, that, the sort of systemic challenges we're facing over the next 20, 30 years, ageing, environmental breakdown, et cetera, et cetera. The right has ready-made responses to this, right? Close the borders, um, blame people who aren't from here. Uh, if you, you know, By 2050, the UN's predicting potentially 200 million climate refugees. Britain's actually one of the countries which, broadly speaking, with climate change, doesn't really affect us. If anything, it's probably going to be a net beneficiary of it. You know, Russia, Russia and Canada are the big beneficiaries. Britain's, unless something happens to the Gulf Stream, Britain's but it will be okay. Um, but so generally speaking, that 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 would maybe be more uh, apply more to say the US or to parts of Europe where there's a massive overlap between these these crises on the horizon and already a breakdown in politics and the ability of civil society to formulate problems to what remain comparatively speaking quite small problems you know compared to the ones ahead of us. So I think that level of fragmentation still exists. Uh, the sad thing is, I think 2007 began to surmount some of it, but the, the general election where Labour did surprisingly well. And I, I don't just mean where Labour got 40%. I also mean a lot of people went back to the toys because they don't like Labour. I mean, that that's it's not fine. Obviously, you don't want that to be the majority of the country, but it, it looked like a more coherent um, political culture, right? It wasn't fragmenting. You know, fascism is when you start to see seven parties on 10, 15 percent. Right. We're seeing that in a few places. Um, that's when things start to get, you know, concerning. And I think that um, the divides are there. But the problem is, that even if we just maintain our present divides with the sort of challenges and the change context over, context over the next 20, 30 years, you know, political management becomes very difficult mm-hmm. and we'll go back to the, the idea of multitude multitude for thomas hobbes was a very bad thing because the multitude becomes the people through the act of representation through oneness now he was talking about a monarch but not just a monarch you know he also thought you might have it like in venice a doge and beneath them a council but fundamentally that the the act of representation and the act of um 
sovereignty, the, the sort of the transposition of sovereignty on the, on the figure of the individual for Hobbes on the, on the sovereign, the monarch, that is what stops civil war. And civil war for Hobbes isn't just necessarily people killing each other. Of course, he wrote Leviathan in the context of the English Civil War. It's also where basically you have a, a breakdown or what we might call anomie. You have a breakdown in sort of civic life, political understanding, you know, mutuality, reciprocity. Yeah. And I, it does feel to me that there's a number of European countries going in that direction. And, and so then you, you revert to, you know, what the famous phrase about socialism or barbarism. It's a bit of a cliche. But I think it's probably quite apposite. You know, you're obviously you're in Brazil. I think that's perfectly appropriate there as well. Um, you know, you're looking at much of the world and it's a perfectly appropriate way of understanding what's coming over the next 30, 40 years. Absolutely. So let me just finish, put, you know, potentially putting an optimistic spin on it. Uh, it might be a little bit, uh, it might be a little bit doomly at the same time as being optimistic, I guess. But we like to kind of periodize the present on this podcast. That's kind of, that's a little bit of, well, it's a major part of, of the project. And I guess one could say that at least, you know, in Britain, politics isn't going back in the box. Do you buy that notion? Uh, do you think that, you know, the Brexit vote was um, indicative of a breaking with the consensus politics of the 90s and 2000s and that we won't return to that? Or can you, or do you feel more gloomy that perhaps um, there needs to be some, serious political you know mass political intervention to sustain uh, this very little nascent element of politicization that's happening now i think both i mean we obviously need a major political intervention but we need to have that intervention because it isn't going back in the box and if we don't stage that intervention and you know the far right the ethno-nationalist right will um that whole that thing about and this is a cliche the whole thing about may you live in interesting times and actually that isn't a phrase or you know it's a curse i think I think there's actually something to that. And I know, you know, I never would have thought prior to the crisis, 2000, prior to 2007, when nothing really happened, right? Um, prior to that, I never thought I would say that. But, you know, these eras do come with enormous problems. And now we can actually look back, you know, Aula Minerva. Now we can look back at this period from the early 1980s. And of course, there were moments of political contestation and so on. But really, well, the 1990s in particular, all the way through to 2008 and you think how the hell did you did you did you see that level of political management that level of orthodoxy maintained purely through economic relations right yeah um, and it's it's remarkable and it's now ended or it's ending and the concern is and i think the neoliberal individual the neoliberal subject has been so hollowed out of any kind of ethics of any kind of morality that it's it's kind of worrying. So, for instance, there was this this poster up today in Christchurch, um, led by donkeys. It's kind of like a Remainer agitprop thing, and they put up this poster quoting Anne Widdicombe, who's a Brexit Party candidate, about how gay sex is bad, right? And and it said target gay people, and you know, and obviously for them, they're from London. That's an appalling thing to say. Most people disagree with it, but Christchurch MP is one Christopher Chope, who's probably the most homophobic MP in Parliament. Um, he's a really bad person. In Christchurch, maybe 30% of people would agree with that. They won't even know it's meant to be ironic. And <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, being deadly, you know, I'm being deadly serious. Yeah, and, no, it's, I mean, it's kind of, you're absolutely right. I know Christchurch, I've got a family background close by as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a serious, it's a serious thing. And so the question is, the neoliberal subject wouldn't die for anything. No, I don't want to die for anything. You know, I don't like this idea of the idea of dying for something. <laughs> but there are really, there are really treasured things out there. So, right to a fair trial by your peers, um, 
uh, innocent until proven guilty, um, uh, all kinds of sort of civil and political rights, which over the 60s, 70s, 80s, we rolled out to new groups, right? Equality under the law. And they could be rolled back. I actually think they could be rolled back far more easily than we realize. Um, and what's the sort of what's the basis for them? Because they weren't, they were often legislative, they often weren't won by mass movements. You know, what's the real basis for them, really, you know, in, in society? Who's going to argue over the kitchen sink with their uncle or their their kids or their mum about, you know, realistically the right to abortion? You know, you're going to have very emotive arguments. It will happen all the time. But, you know, who are the major social actors choreographing that at a sort of macro level? You know, historically, it's been the labor movement. Historically, it's been, you know, national liberation movements. Been all kinds of actors, and I mean, you know, that's what we now as socialists need to step into that that sort of that um, that vacuum, because these are the sorts of debates that are going to become alive again. Because you know, the, the neoliberal mm-hmm. subject is not is not enough to defend the gains of the 20th century. It's certainly not enough to, you know, although the, the economic gains have been eroded for for a while, it's certainly not enough to even you know maintain the sort of civic and political ones. It wasn't exactly not a, not exactly an optimistic note, but an apposite one, I think, <laughs> yeah. and a really good one, I think, as well, on which to finish. Absolutely, well, great. Thanks very much, Aaron. My pleasure. It was a real pleasure talking to you guys. All right. Thank you very much. Cheers.